morning, we are going to continue in uh, Exodus chapter 3 and 4, um, but before we do, I do want to pray. So if you guys will, uh, just pray with me now. Let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you that you are our security. God, that you are all that we need in life, for life and godliness that you are where our satisfaction comes from, that no matter what's going on in our lives, despite our abilities or inabilities or securities or even insecurities, God, you are near and you are enough and you are all that matters. And so this morning we fix our eyes on you. God, we trust in you. Lord, in this world where war happens, where chaos, confusion, things don't go the way that we thought they should go or, or, or thought that they would go, Lord, it's just an opportunity for us to lean into you and to allow you to draw us out and closer to you, that you draw near to us and that you have a name and an identity and a declaration and a proclamation over our lives that goes beyond anything, any circumstance or any feeling could even articulate. And so this morning, Father, I pray that we would receive those arms of embrace of the Father in Christ and that as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would just blow us away, literally. May we remove our shoes of our personal identities away from you and come before you to behold who you are in all its rawness and wildness and goodness that you would then be able to declare to us who and whose we are and the purpose and the promises that you have over us and our church and even this world. And so, God, I pray we lift up all that's happening in Israel right now, in the Middle East. Lord, we lift up all of our sailors and the military and all of the uh, leaders involved with all of these decisions that affect so many. And, God, we confess that you are sovereign and you are good. Lord, we do pray, come. God, we ask for their protection, we ask for wisdom, we ask for all of these things, we ask for their safe return, and ultimately, Lord, we, we look to you, we trust in you, and God, we, we love you. And so now, Lord, as I decrease, I ask that you would increase within me, God, I ask that you would speak prophetically through me, and God, I ask that if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and their Savior and the King of their hearts and the one in whom they look to and trust in. I pray they would not leave here without having fully surrendered to you as Lord and King. And so, God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. Um, so I want to actually start off here with a little uh, call and response here. Uh, again, this is something that comes right out of the Psalms. And uh, I, I feel like whenever I preach on a passage that has to do with taking our eyes off of circumstances and ourselves. It's like every chord and everything in here just decides to be like, I'm not going to work today. And I'm going to remind you that you don't even really need a microphone. You don't need anything. All you need is the Spirit of God. And that's what this church has always been founded upon, and we always will operate up in and upon that. Um, but the mics are helpful because it's recording and there are people overseas that want to hear the message as well, right? And so we want to do all the things with excellence and we want to do all these things at that level. However, it is extremely important that in the midst of all of it, we never take our eyes off of the Lord. So, with that said... Um, do a little call and response. This is probably familiar to many of you if you've been with me, so I want you to repeat after me. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. So often, life has a way of stretching us beyond our capacity and leaving us kind of feeling overwhelmed. You ever been there? This is not because of any of the things that's taken place this morning. This is what's taken place in life. Like this is some part of the sermon that God placed on my heart as I'm reading through chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus, which is where we're going to be. 
And so when things get busy or difficult, success seems kind of out of reach. Failure, disappointment, they feel like they're your only option. It's like, what is happening? Why is this happening like this? What is going on in our world? What's going on in my life? We can tend to grasp for control, and we can try and try and figure it out on our own. That's what our tendency is as a fallen people. When things don't go the way that we expect in life, it can get pretty overwhelming. It can cause you to feel even like an imposter. It can make you feel like you're not good enough, like you're walking a tightrope, and at any moment, you're going to be found out. So there's this temptation to cut and run before everything comes crashing down on us in life. Like you can feel like if we just, all of this pressure will be relieved if I can just take off. Because when a balloon is about to pop, everything and anything becomes just too much pressure. And our souls can feel like this in this world, whether it's at your job, maybe even your kids. Everything, every little thing, marriages, The guy cuts you off at the stoplight, and it's like the world just ended, right? Years ago, when I first stepped into ministry, uh, I found myself in a role that came with more challenges and pressure than I was expecting, you know? I'm like, I'm I'm ready for this. Let's go. And then it hit, and I'm like, wait, this is not what I was thinking. It's a lot more difficult than I thought. And so, to be honest, I was looking for a little affirmation, you know? Young guy, stepping into things, feeling like I needed a good pep talk from somebody. So I turned to a man I really looked up to, still do, and uh, I really honestly just wanted that affirmation. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, I want, I need to know, I need to be reminded that I have what it takes right now. And so I I was looking for something like, you know, you feel overwhelmed? That's crazy. Like, you feel overwhelmed? Like, you're like God's gift to this situation. You've got this. That's what I was looking for. You ever done that? Like fish for a compliment? Like, it's so hard. Tell me I'm great. You ever done that before? Um, and, and, and if I had gotten that, I really looked up to this guy. Like, there's some, like, power in that kind of affirmation, especially from somebody that you really respect. And, and that's, I'm not saying that it's not helpful to get affirmation like that and that you shouldn't affirm others that way, but um, <clears throat> that's not what I got. In fact, in response to me feeling like I didn't have what it takes, the feedback that I got was more like, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's not just a feeling. You don't have what it takes. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, you're in way over your head. And then he said, and so am I. And really, the only way we're going to get through any of this is if God's with us and for us and helps us. And if that's the case, if God's called you to it, not only will he take you through it, you'll walk in victory. But it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Because if God is for us, then who could be against us? Like that's the only real question that matters. See, the truth is, is that we're just dumb sheep, right? I mean, seriously, you need to get this. Some of y'all need to get this. Much of your anxiety and insecurity is based off of the fact that you have not come to the grips with just how stupid you are. Welcome to church. Right? I mean, we're just dumb sheep, but we have a really, really good shepherd. And that changes everything. It doesn't excuse the stupidity. (laughs) But he says, come near. Follow me. I don't identify you by any of that. I love you because you're mine. That's it. Because the truth is that when, when we check into that, it becomes the most emboldening and encouraging and comforting reality that you will ever experience. And I'll tell you what, I'm more convinced of it now than I ever have been before in my life. Like, it doesn't make me want to check out and run. It causes me to lean into the good shepherd, to even rest in the midst of the race, 
to trust in him. Like last week, we met a man named Moses, okay? We started our series in Exodus, and he, a man named Moses, he's born a Hebrew slave, and yet he's drawn out from the waters of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's adopted into the royal family as a prince of Egypt. Then we read about Moses' identity struggle and, and how he's overcome by his own passions when seeing an Egyptian beat one of his own people, and in this show of his own strength and his own power, he kills this Egyptian. But rather than being impressed or even grateful, which is probably what he was expecting from them, that Hebrew that he rescued actually turned him in, and then Pharaoh himself sought to kill Moses. But rather than uh, sticking around and trying to work through all of this, he takes off. He attempted to enter into God's purposes for his life without God. In his own strength, it was the shallow counterfeit version of God's calling and God's ultimate purpose and promise on his life. But it was premature, it was self-exalting, and ultimately it was all in vain. And so Moses takes off, he leaves it all behind, he starts over somewhere else. But how many of you know that you can't outrun God? So chapter 3 then picks up with Moses on the other side of the desert in a land called Midian, which would now be around the border of modern-day Jordan and even Saudi Arabia. Moses' life in Egypt at this point was literally a lifetime away. Like if you've watched the movies about Moses' life, a lot of times we get our like kind of Old Testament theology from movies, you know, like meh. Most of the time we don't realize that he at this point would be pushing 80 years old, okay? He is an old man, sorry, anyone approaching that, right? (laughs) But that is true, like that's the power of this, and yet, at the same time, we see that it's just the beginning of his life, which is part of the power here. Like, at this point, he's not only started a family in Midian, he's raised a family there. In fact, at this point in the story, he's pushing 80 years old, and he is a lifetime away from all of the things that had happened in Egypt. And so all of the struggles, all of the stresses of Egypt, they're, they're way back in the back of his mind. But again, God's not done with him. He doesn't even know who the Lord is at this point, but all of that's about to change. Because Moses' name, remember, in Hebrew, his name, Moses, or Moshe in Hebrew, means drawn out. And in Egyptian, it means son. And so we're about to see here that God intends to continue drawing Moses out into his true identity as a son so that he can then lead God's people out of their identity as slaves and into their own promise of sonship in him. This is the context. This is what's going on. But again, Moses can't lead Israel into spaces and places that the Lord hasn't already taken him. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to walk through chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we're going to look at three ways that God draws Moses out into his identity of sonship. And so as we do, we're also going to see the ways that he does the same thing for each one of us. And so I've actually taken these points and turned these three points into questions to help us identify or, or, or enter into even the identity that he's declared over you in Christ this morning, okay? And so these questions are also going to be the framework for the rest of our time. So, number one, first question we're going to see him walk through and uh, begin to learn, and we want to also enter into, is are you acknowledging God's faithfulness to his promises in your life? Are you acknowledging God's faithfulness to his promises in your life? Number two, are you asking the right questions? And number three, are you trying to do it on your own, in your own strength? All right, here we go. Here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get, okay? I am not, but I know and trust in the great I am. I am not, but I know and trust in the great I am. All right, you ready? Chapter three, verse one, here we go. So, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so this is a place of very real encounter with God. Moses doesn't even know the Lord yet. He's an old man. He's just trying to keep his sheep from wandering away. And suddenly God encounters him, and God Almighty speaks. And he calls him by his name. He says, Moses. And his response then is, here I am. And God's drawing near, even here, as he's drawing Moses out. And so in this moment, Moses is totally present with the Lord. Here I am. There's an availability to that statement. My hope is that you're available this morning as well. Because I believe God wants to speak to you. And God tells Moses to remove his shoes. And again, shoes often represent identity. They they represent where you've been and even where you're going. And often they carry the dirt of your past with you. God tells him to take them off. He says, your past and your future don't define you. I define you. Here and now. As C.S. Lewis says, the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Right now. To receive that identity. To receive who God says you are here and now. In this moment, it requires laying everything else aside. Not only what others think about you, but what you think about you. It's huge. But how can God Almighty draw near? I want you to think about this. This is really important because we don't take this for granted. God, holy in holy other. The creator, sinless. How can he draw near? How is this possible? Like, I don't want you to miss the tension here. Moses is both drawn in here and petrified because God is a consuming fire. And this is the same God that we serve today. It's not different. It's not like the, 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 the mean God of the Old Testament and the nice God of the New Testament. No, same God. Same holy, all-consuming fire that is the glory of God. And yet, that which should be utterly consumed by his presence is not. What's going on? It's significant. Because God's holy presence, again, it's like the fury of a raging furnace to anything that would be sinful, especially sinful humanity. And yet, this all-consuming fire is present without destruction. It rages, and yet this desert bramble bush, this dry tree, is not consumed. Somehow God's presence is available and near and full and yet non-lethal. But how? Scholars believe this bush was actually a small acacia tree, which is also the tree that God will later command Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant out of. That's significant. It's the mercy seat of God where the manifest presence of God will dwell in the tabernacle, which we'll talk about later in this series, which would later be in the middle of the temple in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. So I want you to catch the imagery here. The holiness of the all-consuming God has come near to humanity, and yet this desert bramble bush is not consumed. Track with me. Another thing about the acacia is that it's full of thorns, big thorns. Long, three-inch thorns. Thorns that could be twisted into a crown. Thorns that would be shoved eventually into Christ's head as he, God with us, Emmanuel, in our midst, would be consumed on our behalf by the wrath of God on another tree. A cross. Verse 3 says, Moses turned aside to see this great sight. What a great sight it was, more than he could have ever imagined, to see why the bush is not burned. 
And the reason the bush wasn't burned or consumed is the same reason Moses was not burned or consumed by the presence of God. Because God himself had come near. God himself, the holy, all-consuming fire of glory, would dwell with man on the acacia, pointing to how God himself would wrap himself in thorns. A symbol of the curse in Genesis 3. And he would then quench the consuming fires of God's wrath on behalf of all who would come near by faith in Christ. Yes, I think all of this is on display here in this little encounter. Does he recognize it? No. He's just like, what's up with that bush? Many of you might be at that place in your walk with Christ this morning. What's going on? Something's intriguing here. Why? why? That might even be the only reason you're here this morning. But there's way more. The invitation is on the table for you to enter in and allow him to draw you out into this identity. So yes, they're on that mountain surrounded by sheep. God is giving Moses a glimpse of his glory and inviting him into this redemptive story. I don't know why I'm rhyming so much this morning, but I am. Roll with it. This is the gospel, guys. That God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live. And he died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave and the very barrier between us and the presence of God. We're all fuel for the fire, dry wood, brambles and thorns, aside from outside of Christ. But in Christ, because of what he did, because he conquered sin and death through the resurrection, he paved the way to eternal life. And it's an eternal life that begins the moment we place our faith and our hope in what Christ has done for us at the cross. And through the resurrection. And at that point, his spirit meets us, enters into us, justifies us by what Jesus has done, not what you can or cannot do. And he begins to change us from the inside out. He begins to call us, to draw us out. Even from ourselves and into who he says we are because of whose we are. Ultimately, because of who he is. And so this invitation is to draw near, to draw near with boldness and intimacy, like to know God even as we're known. And yet, and yet it's all steeped in awe and reverence and gratitude. It's the realization that that all sin is like fuel for God's holy fire of God's wrath, like dry wood would be consumed in glory. All humanity outside of Christ is like dry grass, fleeting Here today, gone tomorrow, fuel for the fire. Jesus used this kind of language himself. The only way that you are safe is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And yet, and yet, like as, like I I hope this provokes a fear in you of God and a fear of doing anything outside of what God's called you to do, a fear of sinning and going your own way. I hope that provokes sin in, I mean, a fear of sinning, whew, Some of y'all might provoke some sin in you. You're like, oh, I don't know about this. But like the reality is I hope that this does provoke that in you. But I want you to see that this is where you are truly safe. Like the, the, the only way we're safe is by grace in Christ. In the ungrateful heart, listen. The ungrateful heart is the one that sins without a care. It takes it for granted. The ungrateful heart doesn't truly fear God. It simply does whatever it pleases in the moment. It identifies with sin rather than Savior. It says, well, I can't be good enough, and so why even try? You're still looking at yourself. You're not beholding him. When you behold him, you go, yeah, I'm not good enough. But he is, and he loves me. Big difference. You see, That faith, that that leads to grace, it doesn't take it for granted. It ignites a life of gratitude and worship and even celebration and joy. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs, because the fear of God brings us to a place of faith and gratitude for grace. And so the fear of God is actually the reason we draw near to him in intimacy, in true identity, in joy. That's what it sparks. We get this, it's not like I'm running away from him because I'm scared of him. It's because everything else I'm petrified of, and he's my good shepherd. That's why I draw near. You see, those who don't fear God, they fear everything else. 
They're beholden to the acceptance and approval of lesser gods and counterfeit identities. But those who truly fear God have nothing else to fear, especially when he draws near. Because you realize who he is and whose you are. As David wrote, likely recalling the journeys of Moses, even as he himself was a shepherd, also, he writes in Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When the Lord taps him and says, nope, stay on the path, he's petrified to go against that. That's the fear of God. It's much easier said than done, though, right? This is a lesson that God's faithful and patient to teach us, just as we see him patiently teaching Moses. Because I'm going to tell you something, Moses doesn't get it all right up front here. Far from it. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God gives this promise to Moses, and then he connects it to a long line of promises that he's showing himself faithful to keep with his ancestors hundreds of years before this. He's revealing that Moses is a part of something way bigger than he could have ever imagined or thought about. Something way beyond himself, something way beyond Midian or Egypt or even Israel. Something we even now are deeply connected to. And so God encounters Moses here with his presence and his promise right up front, even before any of it's been accomplished. But why? Why does he give it all to him up front? This is important. Like, why does he do it like this? Because it's all a part of God drawing Moses out of his counterfeit identities and into his sonship. He's like, this ain't about you. I'm inviting you into something more and in the process, securing you in who you actually are. So God tends to do this. He tends to actually leverage time itself as he patiently draws us into our heritage. This heritage of sonship in the Lord. Time, guys, though it's frustrating to us, that process of sanctification and we're dealing with our own struggles and our, uh, like insecurities and anxieties and all that stuff. And we're like, can we just, like, Lord, come. Good prayer, right? Good prayer. But at the same time, you need to understand time is a tool in the Lord's hands. And he uses it to do something bigger than you think in the moment. He's definitely doing it with Moses right here. He walks us into the wilderness by faith where we have to trust and rely on him, where we let go of our self-centered insecurities and learn by experience, not just who we are, but whose we are, not just that God is able, but also that he is willing, that he is faithful, that he's good on an experiential level, that his promises are true and his love is everlasting. Like he can tell you, but it's way deeper when he shows you, right? That he will, in fact, finish the good work that he started in you. And then when you look back, it's not just something that was established in our minds and memories. It's an experience that we've been wrapped up in like the very arms of God the Father himself. (laughs) It's deeper. It's not a theory. It's an identity. Often that takes time. It's an identity that seeps deep into our souls. It aligns us with his purpose and his presence. And this is what it is to walk with God. Like, this is what he rescues us unto. It's not just a deliverance from our enemies. This is a deliverance even from our own self-striving and insecurity. To rest, even in the midst of the race, in grace. And yet, even though the promise is made, how often do we wrestle back and forth? <laughs> and, and, like, are we, and then we're shocked. And we think God's shocked. When we do it, when we wrestle back and forth, like how often do we question whether he truly will come through? 
even after we've seen him do it over and over and over and over again. Like, how often do we give credibility to the lie that we're on our own? Like, he's just sent us out to prove ourselves to him, and then when we fail, we think he's going to be like, I'm so sick of this guy. Like, what a lie. Some of you are even ashamed of that right now instead of being like, yeah, wow, he really is really patient and good. This is that that shame thing, that's a slave mentality. That's exactly what God has come to deliver his people from. But it often takes time, again, to come to grips with the reality that I am not, but I know and trust in the great I am. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, watch this. This is his response to all that promise and purpose. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, I want you to think about (laughs) the Moses from like one chapter ago, okay? Now, perspective, one chapter ago was 40 years ago, okay? So, but but around that. Moses, (laughs) he, he was ready to throw down on any bully he came across. Like he, there was no who am I in his life at that point. When you read the first couple of chapters, or definitely chapter two, he was the prince of Egypt who stepped up to kill the Egyptian. He's the one who stepped in to judge between the Hebrews. He's the one who was quick to single-handedly defend those seven women, those strangers at the well from the shepherds who were bullying them. He's not one to back down, or at least he wasn't 40 years ago. But now, life has happened. Some would say that Moses has been humbled, but I don't think that's the right definition. I don't think that's the right term. That's not the right definition for humility. You see, true humility is actually deeply confident, but not in itself. In, a, a humble man is not a man who's confident in himself. He's confident in the Lord. Very different. The humble person recognizes their limits, but also realizes the limitlessness of God on their behalf. And so we're going to see that Moses becomes the most humble man on the planet. But at this point, he's not humble. He's simply humiliated. He doesn't believe that he has what it takes, but he doesn't believe God has what it takes either. Or at least is willing to on his behalf. You see, that's not humility. It's actually a form of self-centeredness and pride because he still thinks it's all up to him. So Moses says, who am I? Like, I used to be somebody. I used to be strong. I used to be special. I used to have what it takes. I used to be a prince of Egypt, but I blew it. Now, who am I? His eyes are still fixed on himself, but then God responds with this, verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God is giving him the promise right up front. He's playing the long game with Moses, and he's inviting him into his own heritage of trust and faithfulness that he wants to build up in him, just like he did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before. Just like he's going to do with Israel. Just like he does with each one of us. And by the way, anybody know what mountain he's talking about here? You know what mountain he's having this encounter on? Mount Sinai. We'll see this later. That's important to remember because he says, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's going to be a sign to you that my hand's been with you. You see, here's, here's the first question. Are you acknowledging God's faithfulness to his promises in your life? Like, what if God made all these promises to Moses and he forgot about it? We were forgetful people, man. Like, like was this just my imagination? Did all that really happen? Was that really God? Did I just have a dream? It, like, did, did he really just fulfill his promise to me? Like, you imagine, because remember, he goes, he does everything God says he's going to do. He re, it, Pharaoh releases them. They go out into the desert. They come back, and they come back to Mount Sinai. Like, we'll see. This season of return to this mountain, though, is full of challenges and trials, so many that it would have been easy for Moses to forget how faithful God had been, but the very fact that they'd been delivered from Egypt and gone through all of that, it was a sign that God has been faithful to keep his promise in everything and in every way. But often when life hits real hard, we can overlook all of that. 
because we get tunnel vision, right? And we forget how faithful he's been and his promises are true. So are you acknowledging his faithfulness in your own life? Even now, like this is a big part of how he draws us out of the counterfeit identities in this world and secures us in our own new identity in him. It's how he builds that heritage of faith in our lives. How many times do we just pass those mountains by and be like, I think God said something about that. I can't remember. Anxiety, 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 right? And just inward, self-centered thinking. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay? So when confronted with God's great purpose and promise, Moses' attention is turned to himself, asking, who am I? But when Moses asks what God's name is, he reveals his identity to him as, I am who I am. That's what my name is. It's a direct inversion of Moses' self-oriented insecurity. Moses' concern is, watch it, who am I? God's revealed identity to him then is, I am who I am. Like I am, I have been, I always will be. It's not about you or who you are, Moses. It's about who I am. Now, honestly, enough said. That should be the end of it, right? Like think about it. God has answered his question of what? What is your name? What is God? You want to know what God is? He is. He always has been. He always will be. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. This is the ultimate mic drop moment, right? Like, this is one of those, like, any other word or utterance from you is a how dare you moment. P.S. Jesus often made it clear that he is the great I am in the flesh. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, talking to the Pharisees who were challenging him in that moment, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That was intentional. And we know that they knew exactly what that meant because they tried to stone him in that moment. But he escaped. The point is, Jesus is saying, I am and I have come and drawn near to you. Back to Exodus 3. God could have just left it here. Totally justified. Like, I'm the all-powerful, I say go, so go, but he doesn't. His love is actually on display here. His, his, he, he doesn't just want us to believe in his power, guys. He wants us to believe in his love and receive it. This is huge. Not just that he's able, but that he's willing, that he cares, that he's involved intimately. So he doesn't just give them an abstract name of power and infinites. He connects the dots to his personal name known to his covenant family. This is about to get real personal. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the Lord, the phrase here for the Lord in Hebrew is actually just four Hebrew consonants, four sort of letters, yod, he, vav, he, right? It's like a, a Y, an H, a V, and an H. Like it's a, it, it, it's, it's a construction that would be, has been over the centuries referred to as the most holy and personal name of God. We understand it today as Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? The implications and personal depth of this name have been actually plumbed for thousands of years. People are trying, like the, the, the power and personal mystery revealed in this name is, is epic. I mean, it's even got the most epic title I could ever think of. It's, it's, it, I didn't come up with it, but this is known as the Tetragrammaton, okay? The name of God, the Tetragrammaton. I know it sounds like the mothership from Star Wars or something, but the Tetragrammaton. Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, Yahweh, 
right? No one really knows how it sounds because it was so holy they couldn't say it. They would just say Adonai, right? And so it, 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 it's so powerful, but what we see here is that some have speculated, many scholars speculate that the four consonants represent the breath of life. Yod, Vah, brings another layer to the depth of Psalm 150, verse 6, which says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Like, how cool is that? Like, especially, take that in. Even those who draw breath in order to deny him do so with his very name on their lips. Like, he is preeminent in everything. And the very reason they draw breath is because he allows it. And it still brings him glory. Like not to mention that the word for the Holy Spirit in both Greek and in Hebrew is the word for breath or wind. He is the breath of life. So as the Lord reveals himself to Moses here, it goes hand in hand with his promise and his purpose as he reiterates it all up front to Moses. And he does it all in light of saying, hey, I'm closer to you than your own skin. Like how close is the breath of God to you? How close is your breath? You know what it does? You know what your breath does? It brings oxygen in and it expels carbon whatever. What is it? Monoxide, dioxide, whatever? I'm not a scientist. But that's what happens. It's like breathing him in and yourself out. I am not, but I know who is. And I trust him. And then he just articulates, reiterates to him, to Moses here, his promises. Verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. That one would have been hard to believe. And yet, as we'll see, he did it. So his purpose, though, it comes with a promise of victory right up front. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. He doesn't say it's not going to come with difficulty or perceived setbacks. In fact, he promises that it will. But he also makes it clear, victory is already yours. Why? Because the great I am said so. The question is, do you trust him? Which leads to chapter 4. We're going to roll through this, all right? Then Moses answered, Got all the promise? Here's Moses' response. But don't do that. (laughs) Just say yes, (laughs) as Mary did. Be it unto me as you have said. That's powerful. But God's mercy is on display here. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then he, so he tells God, behold, like pay attention, God, as if you're not. You're not hearing me. They're not going to believe me or listen to me like they didn't care 40 years ago. They're not going to care now. And the Lord said to him, verse 2, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. I want you to think about this. That staff would have been Moses' primary tool in life at this point as a shepherd. It's how he led the sheep, it's how he disciplined the sheep, it's how he protected the sheep, and it's how he kept his own foot stable in rocky terrain. It's not much, (laughs) but it's all he's got. And God says, what's that in your hand? And he says, throw it on the ground. 
So he throws it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it, which means that's a scary serpent. Poisonous snake, right? Moses was a shepherd. He knew what snakes were. He knew which ones were poisonous, which ones weren't. That was a bad snake, right? In that land, probably a cobra. Egyptian cobra, likely. King cobra. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Whatever. Dangerous, okay? Track with me. If you've ever seen images of ancient pharaohs, you likely see them wearing that hood. What's coming out of the top? A cobra. Flared hood, all that stuff. That was a symbol of a divine power which came, was symbolized by the cobra. It was a divine god that they worshipped. And so when he put that hood on, the idea was that everything Pharaoh said and did was operating under a divine authority that would have been unquestioned and uncontended. Like you don't mess with a cobra. That's the idea. And Moses sees that cobra and he's like, I don't, we don't mess with the cobra. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, this in itself was an act of faith, but Moses does it. So he puts out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Again, this was symbolic of his authority over the cobra and even over Pharaoh, given to him by God. Verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In other words, when they see it, when Israel sees this, they're going to recognize this is a power greater than the one that oppresses them. Verse 6, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Leprosy would have plagued the ancient world. It was incurable and it was fatal. And so suddenly Moses has it. But, verse 7, then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. God says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe in even the two signs or listen to your vo voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Again, God is showing his authority over the power of Pharaoh. He's showing his uh, authority over disease even. And even the greatest source of life and fertility that the Egyptians had in that world was the Nile. It was a clear declaration from Yahweh, I am the true authority. I am true healing. I am the true source of light. Also a foreshadowing of the source of life being what? The blood. Verse 10. You guys with me? But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Like Moses, you're taking too much credit here. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So Moses, again, he's still concerned about his own personal shortcomings. But God doesn't say, no, Moses, you're amazing. <laughs> he says, yeah, I, I know, I've watched you. I, 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 I'm very aware of your inability to articulate yourself well. I know. But trust me, rely on me. You have everything you need for life and godliness. He doesn't just call the equipped guys. He equips the called. But that requires faith. And that faith, guys, is often way, if not every time, way more important than your own gifting eloquence. Verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Now, at this point, he's not just saying, I'm not enough. Now he's saying, God, you're not enough in me. This has escalated from insecurity to disobedience. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. 
So I want you to see the mercy of God on display here. Even though Moses does later, and actually does speak eloquently later, as we're going to see, his insecurity is outpacing his faith in this moment. And yet God's patience is so profound that even in this moment, he provides Moses with the help, even the help that he perceives that he needs from his brother. That's a gracious God. And then it says, Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Remember, it's been 40 years since Aaron has seen his brother. And so the timing is all aligning around this encounter. It's not a coincidence. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So God calls Moses to lead through proclamation and demonstration. And even in the face of deep insecurity and this infantile faith that he has, God is drawing Moses out and into his own identity in the Lord. He's bringing him to the conclusion that I am not, but I know and trust in the great I am. And so when confronted with God's calling in our lives, we can tend to ask the wrong questions, right? Like some of you are trying to get an answer to a question that you've asked, and God's like, you're asking the wrong questions. The premise is all upside down and inside out. You're asking it in light of your own capability. You're asking really for God to fuel your own ambitions and pride, and he loves you too much to do that because all that's doing is setting you up for a shameful fall, and God loves you too much for that, right? Like we ask, who am I? We ask, am I knowledgeable enough? Am I persuasive enough? Am I eloquent enough? Am I impressive enough? Do I have what it takes? Too often we check out because we're focused so much on our own abilities when all the while God's not asking us to behold ourselves. He's asking us to behold and trust in who he is and respond in faith. That often comes with a whole lot of tripping over yourself. And God's patient and he's in it. He's here for it. Which is the second point. Are you asking the right questions? The question isn't who am I, the question really is whose am I? What has God said and do I trust him? Is he able? Does he care? Some of you may believe that he's all-powerful and even all-knowing. You just don't think he cares. Can I go real for a moment? So many barriers to coming to Christ have not to do with people not believing that he is who he said he is or that God is real or existent or all of that. They just think he doesn't care. They think that all the things that they've experienced in life, the death of a loved one, the, 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 the way things didn't turn out the way that they wanted them to is all a sign that God has checked out and does not see, he does not hear, he does not know, he does not care. And so my prayer for you is to ask him, if that's you, I want to encourage you to ask him to remind you, to show you, to break in and let him know what, let you know what he thinks of you. I can't, I can't break that barrier. I can't do it. But he can. And he will. If you'll ask him, he will. Let him open the eyes of your heart to see him move. Let him open your eyes to see all the way. He's already shown himself to be so faithful in your life. Listen, like the fact that you're even here this morning is proof that he cares about you. The fact that you're drawing that breath is proof that he cares about you. Moses' life has been marked by God's sovereign hand of promise and faithfulness, his mother's faithful release, his rescue from the Nile, the Lord meeting him in the wilderness, and yet he still can't take his eyes off of his own inadequacy, and God knows it, and he's patient through it. So another good question to ask, or let God ask you, I should say, is what's that in your hand? What's that in your hand? Are you leveraging your life and your resources and the things that God has placed in your hand, be them ever so small or ever so, in your mind, complicated or profound, whatever it is, are you leveraging them for his kingdom and his glory or for your own? Because if you're doing it for your own and you're doing it on your own, it's just going to cause more anxiety. 
and insecurity? Are you doing it for his glory, for his great commission? Like, again, it might be a skill set that's in your hands or connections, networks, resources, time, talent, treasure. It could be as simple as a wooden staff like Moses. What's that in your hand? Whatever it is, it's been put there by the Lord. The question isn't how good you are at wielding it. He's not saying how, good, how skilled are you at wielding that thing. How good are you at your job? How good are you at speaking? How good are you at whatever it is? The question really is, what would the Lord have you do with it? And so the same is true with your mouth. Guys, don't let the world paralyze you. It's often not the profound theologians and eloquent preachers whom God does his best work through. I'm telling you, it's often those who simply authentically and consistently point to Jesus and break that barrier of silence. Just bring up his name and praise him and talk to people. God, look, it, it's not about eloquence. It's not even about intelligence. Yes, we should study to show ourselves approved. Amen? But hear me. Truth is a person, not a soundbite. And say that again. Maybe that's a soundbite. I don't know. Truth is a person, not a soundbite. Not a zinger. When we witness, we introduce people to the king. I've lost so many arguments and won people to Christ. Because it's not about the argument. It's about who we're pointing to. I've never convinced anyone to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Never. I love talking about these things. But I've never, ever, ever, ever convinced anyone to come to Christ. But I have introduced many to the one who does all the convincing. And I've seen him do mighty things. Eternally significant things. Which leads me to the final point and the final question. Which is, are you trying to do it on your own and in your own strength? Look at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now I want you to notice that Moses is careful to submit to authority throughout this process. This isn't going to be a rebellion. Israel's not going to turn into terrorists against Egypt. It's going to be a legitimate release. And he practices this even with his father-in-law, who would have been a place of authority in that land. So he asks him for that release, and he says, go in peace. Verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So I want you to notice again, language of sonship and inheritance here. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. He's trying to pull them out of their identity as slaves and into sonship. If you refuse to let him go, behold, God says, I will kill your, force, your firstborn son. It's all significant. Now, that's what God wants Moses to say to Pharaoh. Like, no big deal. I'm sure Pharaoh won't mind. God's going to kill your son if you don't listen to me. Okay. Right? Now, all right, we're closing. Before we close, things are about to get really weird. Okay? So just bear with me. Verse 24. This is actually really cool. At a lodging place, this is part of expository preaching, like we don't just skip over things that are like, that is very uncomfortable. So just, you got any little kids in here? No? All right, we're good. All right. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That seems weird. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he, God, let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. <laughs> now, if you don't know what circumcision is, look it up later. Um, but if you think that's weird, I hate to break it to you, but it's about to get even more weird because the Hebrew word for feet here is the Hebrew word regals, which is likely a euphemism for Moses' reproductive toolkit. All right? You got the imagery? Again, welcome to church. Why does God want to put Moses to death? And then why does Zipporah pick up on this? And then why does she cut off her son's foreskin and then touch it to Moses' regals? And then start talking about him being a bridegroom of blood. It would have been a bloody scenario. And, like, I know that we take child dedication seriously, but this is another level, right? Like, especially since her son at this point is probably an adult. Okay? This is really weird. And it would have been weird for Zipporah. I'm hoping Moses is just asleep at this point. Like, I don't know. What's going on? Zipporah seems to somehow know about the covenant God made with Abraham. And part of the covenant involved circumcision, which was a clear reminder of God's promise of salvation from sin and the curse through the seed of Abraham, which has to do with your reproductive toolkit. Okay? There's something significant about this, which tracked through the generations from, again, Abraham, Isaac, right? Jacob, and before that, Noah to Adam. And he says, this is the people through whom my seed will come to deliver the world. Through the blood. It's about the line of the Messiah. That's what's going on here. The seed promise of the people of Israel. Circumcision was a generational recognition of God's covenant promises to his people. Moses had not circumcised his son at this point, which means that up to this point he'd been identifying his own offspring with the Gentiles. Not with God's promise and covenant. Zipporah, his bride, somehow knows about this. She's heard of these promises. And she receives their calling as a family. She recognizes that she is to be grafted into this promise through covenant with him as his bride. And so she takes action. She recognizes that there is a disobedience here, and she takes action to place her faith and her family to receive God's covenant promise. In other words, she's covenantally grafting herself and her son into God's family and the promise fulfilled in the coming Christ. This is Old Covenant stuff. This is Old Testament stuff. We do this now by faith. It was faith for them too then. Hear me. God says that your hearts are to be circumcised, even in the Old Testament. But I want you to see that all of this, all of this is pointing and fulfilled in the coming Christ. The physical seed is no longer in you as a generation, as a people, the church. You're Gentiles. You tracking? It's by faith. All right. It's been fulfilled in Christ, and so now we look back to what they were looking ahead to. Meanwhile, back in Egypt. We get a quick flashback to God's interaction with Aaron, Moses' brother. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And so everything is happening just as God said it would, and yet it's also clear that it's not all up to Moses. In fact, he'd already been, be dead at this point if it weren't for his wife stepping in. It's not all up to him. He needs people around him. God's faithfulness and provision is already clear as he meets with his brother there right in the shadow of Sinai. And then about 15 years ago, I want to tell you a quick story, and we're going to close this. I, about 15 years ago, I, I was thinking about this. I was at a church service just like this one, 
and I went to uh, get some prayer uh, from some people, just like we do at the end of service. We have people with lanyards on, love to pray with you, and I just felt like I wanted some prayer. I didn't have anything specific on my heart. I just was like, hey, you know what? I like prayer. <laughs> I want people to pray for me. I felt like there was a lot going on in my life, and so the lady that then prayed for me, she said she had a vision of me doing battle alongside Jesus. That's kind of cool. It's a cool vision, right? She said, I was holding Jesus' hand with my left hand, and I had a sword in my right. And I thought, that's also cool, right? Get the imagery. I'm like, you know, ha-ha, you know? And Jesus is fighting. He's got a sword in his other hand, too. And then she says, wait, are you right-handed? I said, yes. And she goes, switch hands. You're holding on to God with your weak hand. You're fighting with your strong hand. Switch hands. It's not up to you. He fights for you. He doesn't need you. He's just invited you in. And at this point, let me tell you something. <laughs> He's reminding me. It's all him. I am not. But I know and trust in the great I am. It's important to take these things to the Lord in prayer. Don't just hear this and try and work it all out in your own understanding and in your own mind. Don't just churn over this to try and get smarter because there's a bunch of information. I just hit you like a fire hydrant, I know. But the one thing that I want to encourage you to do, take this to the Lord in prayer. You can't do it on your own. Go to him with these things. If he's in it, this life is just to be counted all joy. Amen? Let's pray.